and turn now to Psalm 149. You may remember that when I've had occasion to be with you and enjoyed the privilege together of thinking about the Word of God, that we have been looking at what is sometimes called the Great Hallel, or a section of Hallel Psalms, the Hallelujah Psalms, because they are so called this because they begin and end with praise the Lord. That's Psalm 146, Psalm 147, 48, 49, and 50. And now we're in the fourth of these, Psalm 149. There is another section of Hallel Psalms, Psalm 113 through Psalm 118, and there are other Psalms like Psalm 117. I guess that is actually in the Great Hallel, in in the Egyptian Hallel. There are many songs that include the word hallelujah, praise the Lord, and this evening we'll look at this particular song which opens up a kind of unique vision of praise to our God for the triumph of the Lord Jesus Christ. Before we read, let's pray. We are thankful, O Lord, that we come to you, the God of victory, Who can withstand your power? Who is like unto you in grace and mercy? Lord, you alone have all authority and power in heaven and on earth and have entrusted that particularly to our mediator, the Lord Jesus Christ, the God-man who has died, who has risen, who now reigns, ascended to your right hand, ruling all things with the keys in his hands, even to death and to hell. We praise you, Lord Jesus Christ, that you are victorious. We praise you, mighty spirit, that you are the victory of God, even in our own experience, bringing to us all that Christ has done according to the will, the power, and the authority of the Father. And so we bless you, our God, as we come, that we come to the one who has even the authority to open the ears that are deaf and to give sight to the blind. We do pray. Relieve us from the terrible burden of our coldness, our formality, our addiction to doctrine, and our constant failing in practice. O Lord, our gracious and mighty victor, may we see your victory coming to bear with great power and joy in our lives and the application of your word as we hear it read and preached this evening. We pray in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Psalm 146. Praise the Lord. Sing to the Lord a new song, his praise in the assembly of the godly. Let Israel be glad in his maker. Let the children of Zion rejoice in their king. Let them praise his name with dancing, making melody to him with tambourine and lyre. For the Lord takes pleasure in his people. He adorns the humble with salvation. Let the godly exult in glory. Let them sing for joy on their beds. 
Let the high praises of God be in their throats and two-edged swords in their hands to execute vengeance on the nations and punishments on the peoples to bind their kings with chains and their nobles with fetters of iron to execute on them the judgment written. This is honor for all his godly ones. Praise the Lord. Indeed, praise the Lord. I hope you caught the note of warfare and the victory of our God. History tells us, maybe some of you have seen the movie, that at the Battle of Agincourt, Henry V and his victorious army knelt down in the mud and they sang. They sang a song of victory. Great armies with great victories sing. Henry V's army sang Psalm 115, but this evening we look at Psalm 149, and I pray that you will feel the urging of the Spirit to sing, to sing a victory, because here we are to give our hallelujahs, our praise to the Lord with great joy, because, and if you're looking for a headline, keep this, hold on to this, this is what it's about, because he makes us glad with the victory honors of Jesus. We have a lot to sing about. We have a victory to sing about. We have Christ's own victory to sing about and the honors that he has won. We're going to look briefly at those initial words in verse 1 and connected to it where it says, Sing to the Lord a new song. First, think about this, the new song of joy, and then the new honors later of joy. This, we are told, is a song for all the godly ones. Verse 1, all God's saints sing this song in their assembly. Think of what's happened in the songs that lead up to this, the praise songs. Creation, Psalm 147, Psalm 148, have praised the Lord. And now it is the assembly of God's people gathered together to sing a special, a new song. And it's not the first time that the Psalms call for a new song, but it is significant that this comes kind of at the tail end of the Psalter, leading up to a grand vision in Psalm 150 of eternity and unveiling of heaven itself. Consider Psalm 33. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. Psalm 96. Sing to the Lord a new song. Psalm 98. Sing to the Lord a new song. Think of how this has worked out in the prophets. Isaiah 42. Sing to the Lord a new song. His praise from the end of the earth. You who go down to the sea, all that fills at the coastlands and their inhabitants. A new song. What is the meaning of this? Are we supposed to simply come up with a new song? I think that is part of the implication, but that isn't the primary idea. The idea, rather, is a renewing of song, a refreshing, even an elevation, a completion, and a fullness of song. This is what you and I are called to to do, to have a completed song where our hearts were cold, bored, weary. Now, renew your song. There is something new to sing about. What is that is so worth singing about? Well, here we take in the whole of Scripture's testimony to what is worth singing about. 
our circumstances have changed. There is a new song, a renewed song, because there is a renewed condition of God's people. Radical change. Consider the newness of being loved by God. We are loved by the God under whose vengeance we ought to fall. We are even called saints, holy ones. In the New Testament, repeatedly, beloved. What a remarkable thing. That is a new circumstance. And it is the propulsion of our love for others. We love, 1 John 4, 19 says, because he first loved us. That's the new condition into which we have come. You, in other words, have this reason to praise the Lord. You are not under wrath. You've been embraced in the love of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Beloved in Jesus Christ. But now at this point, maybe you're saying, that really isn't something that new, actually, is it? Because that's something that Ephesians 1 tells us has occurred in eternity. But, my friends, it is new in our experience. And what else is new in our experience? Not only the love of God, his electing grace that calls us his own, but the victory of Jesus over sin and over death. If you ever wonder, does God actually love me? Think about the cross. In the darkest moments, does God really love me? Does he really care about me? Does he really remember me? Think about the cross. There is no more clear demonstration and securing of his love for you, of his defining you as his holy people, than that moment of the death of Jesus Christ. That was the moment we might say truly. Not of our conversion, perhaps, which happens in experience and time, but of our salvation. We were saved. We were brought to be God's people, a loved people, on Good Friday and Easter morning. And that calls for a new song. That calls for us to blend our praise with the mighty choirs of heaven and do what Revelation 5.9 says they presently do. Think of this. They sang a new song. Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain. And by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. A new song. Because the Lamb has come on the scene of history. And because he has redeemed you. That is worth singing about. And it is different than the songs that have come before. The Psalms are the songs of God's people throughout our history. Our pilgrimage through this life is defined by the Psalms. And think about how many laments there are, how much sorrow, how much complaining about enemies and trials and my own heart there is in the Psalms. No more. This is the song of victory, a glimpse of the new world to come, we can sing with new strength, new joy, new freedom, because isn't this really the end of all things? The dawning of the new age? Think of what we read in Revelation 21 so beautifully. We ought to meditate on these words often. He who is seated on the throne said, Behold, look, see, 
I am making all things new. That includes you. That includes the whole of the creation. And that includes now our song of such a victory. Once in a while, we ought to just get up and shake ourselves and say, no, it isn't the teeming sin and misery of this world that is really the headline news. Or even my present experience, the world is very quickly fading away. All of its desires coming to a decisive and a cataclysmic end. All things are new. And you and I, we get to sing already, not just about, but in the new creation, a renewed song. So when you're weary and sad, when you're depressed, when you feel misunderstood, that's probably most of the time for a lot of us, isn't it? Think on the newness of the world that God is about and how thoroughly he understands our need, that he would renew his love to us in covenant, that he would cause that love to be executed and brought to pass in the blood of our Savior and relieve us at last with the whole world from the bondage of weariness and vanity and death that is in the world. This is our weapon, in other words. This is a marching song. This is a soldier's song of victory. And it is our warfare. We sing. We renew our praise. Because this is who our God is. So just catch the vision here at the beginning. What is God's great purpose for you and for me? To bring us, by his mighty power and grace, into a world in which all the world, our hearts, and all things will sing his love, his power, his victory. That would be worth singing about. But that isn't actually where this psalm goes. It does something far better, something truly unimaginable. And I hope that you'll catch just how utterly shocking this is. The Lord of victory is pleased to honor you. To honor you. Notice this. Verses 4 and 9 both refer to the adornment or the honors that are given to the people of God. It's as if that question asked by Hazuerus, what shall be done to the man whom the king delights to honor, is really finally answered. And shockingly, while we ought to answer that and say, surely it's we could heap all praise and honor and accolade on Jesus Christ, the worthy one. But do you notice what your God does? He comes to adorn, to honor you with the spoils of his victory. Astonishing. Notice this. Verses 2 through 4, the victory first that he honors us with in Christ. Not our victory, but clearly the victory of the Lord Jesus. Listen to the sounds. Verse 3. Praise his name with dancing, making melody to him with tambourine and lyre. And if you're a discerning reader of the Bible, just notice as you go through the Bible where these kinds of words pop up. Think about Moses and Miriam in Exodus 15 after the destruction of Pharaoh's army. Do you remember how they sing? There's a new song. And by the way, it's picked up 
the new song is picked up in Revelation. It's the song of heaven itself. That new song comes after the destruction of Pharaoh's army, and it comes with tambourine and harp and dancing. Or think of David's victory over Goliath. 1 Samuel 18.6 says that as they're coming home, when David returned from striking down the Philistine, the women came out of all the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with songs of joy, and with musical instruments. This is victory. What do you do when you're happy about a victory? You sing. You celebrate. You rejoice. That is what these instruments, that's what these pictures are about. Jesus is victorious. And listen to the words of the song. Christ triumphed over the beast. The wrath of God finished. Again, Revelation 15. The song is not only the song of Moses, but also verse 3 of Revelation 15 says, the song of the Lamb. The song of the Lamb. His worthy praise. His triumph and victory. And this is the victory into which you have now come by faith and which we are to sing. The victory that God, verse 2, is both our maker and our king. He has, as king, conquered and subdued all things to himself, but he has also made us, that is, he has called us into electing grace. He has brought us to be his people. This is the victory not just of a kind of creative power, but of an awesome redemption. God has brought you salvation. God, your God, has accomplished a total and comprehensive and overwhelming victory in the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. What is there that he has not set under his feet? He's conquered sin. He's conquered death. Hell is ended for you. The devil himself is put to flight. Your guilt and shame, your misery, your history, your hostility toward him, your disobedience to him, your dullness, these things really are conquered. And though we wait for the last enemy to be put under Christ's feet, death, these things have already been accomplished. There is a well-known theologian, Oscar Coleman, who has famously put it this way, that we are living between D-Day and V-Day. The decisive turn of events has already happened. The tide has turned. Victory is assured. We are simply in the mop-up phase of history. Christ coming in with his victory is bringing to an end all hostile powers against him in a sense, our victory, the day of victory, is behind us and the full enjoyment of it simply to be yet experienced before us. Appreciate what the psalm tells you. Appreciate what the scriptures tell you. We are not in a posture of weakness. Yes, we are in terms of our flesh and the temptations we experience, our position in this world, but no, dear friends, there is no weakness or uncertainty about these promises, is there? We have through Christ, the victory. Thanks be to God. All this because, notice what it says specifically in verse 4, what incredible words. The Lord takes pleasure. He delights in his people. And who are they? 
the Lord takes pleasure in his people, he adorns the humble with salvation. The incapable, he rejoices in. The miserable, the needy, those who are under the cross. This is why Jesus went to the cross, that he might lift up those who are trodden down. Christ, having received all the honors and praise of heaven and earth for his saving work, has sat down, has received the name that is above every name. The victory belongs to him, and what does he do? Verse 4 again. He adorns you. The word adorn here in the ESV could be variously translated, beautify or crown or glorify, but appreciate the, the clothing metaphor here. Clothing matters. Now, it isn't necessary perhaps for me to wear a suit here in this pulpit, and I hope it doesn't make me look overly stuffy to your ears. But think about a guy you meet in, at a backyard barbecue over corn and ribs. And there he is, shorts and a t-shirt. And then the next day you see him walking into the Pentagon with stripes on his shoulders. And suddenly you can appreciate who this person is. He might have just been a friend before, but he has honor. He has authority. He is invested with a kind of power and decision-making capability that is unique, and everyone salutes. That gives you a different picture, doesn't it, of the same person. Here we are, maybe our Sunday finest, maybe we've come just in our sense of our own worthiness. But appreciate what Jesus Christ does for you. He doesn't just make you beautiful as his bride. Think of Song of Solomon, the beauty of the heavenly bridegroom portrayed in a special way there in the marriage of Solomon. No, what does he do with the humble? This isn't just he clothes you and makes you look beautiful. This is investment with honor and power and rank and victory. Perhaps what ought to come to mind here is that scene where Jonathan, in his loyalty to David, takes off the insignia of his royal position. He removes his robes and he puts them on David. This is what Christ, in his victory, does for you, humble Christian. That is awesome. That is truly astonishing. The signs and symbols of his power, authority, and salvation are yours. You are not going to walk into heaven unnoticed. You cannot live upon the earth without being one who wears that significance and dominion, who has the title to such a crown, and will at last receive the full measure of it. Remember those opening words? In the letters to the churches in Revelation chapters 2 and 3, seven churches and seven times, to the one who overcomes, to the one who is victorious, to the one who conquers. We can easily take those words and say, oh, I sure hope I can conquer. I sure hope I can be among that blessed band. Oh, do you not see? This is what Jesus has done. This is what he's accomplished. And this is what he invests you with. Yours, dear friends, in Christ is the victory through him who loves you and has given himself for you. This is honor for you. You 
however you appear outwardly, whatever you feel in yourself, whatever the world says about you, you are a beautiful and an honored and an authoritative people. That's what the Lord says. That's not what I'm saying. Christ has clothed you, and he will at last openly display the insignia of his own rank and power and honor and authority on you. That means there's no need for shame, is there? If this is how our God looks upon us, if this is what he gives to us, then whatever we have done in the past or even our presence, our present, Christ has won us from it. In this we boast. Christ has defeated us and shared his honor with us. What conqueror has ever done that? What glory is in Christ? It is not, in other words, a dishonor to say, he has conquered me. He's been victorious over me. Because that is the only means by which you will experience his victory, his title, his glory. But as if that could be not even enough. There are other honors. Verses 5 through 9. The honor of the vengeance of Jesus. The honor of his vengeance. Do you notice this? In verse 7. High praises in our throats, two-edged swords in our hands, this vision of a people at war. For what purpose? Verse 7. To execute vengeance on the nations and punishments on the peoples. This is a bit striking and shocking, isn't it? And you notice what it says there in verse 9. This is honor. This is your honor with Christ to go out and execute the vengeance of our God. Now here at this point, we need to be very clear in our understanding. This has been taken wrongly many times, and one of the times was at the Reformation in the Thirty Years' War, which was inflamed by the Peasants' Revolt. This was one of the psalms that was used to justify it and to bring about great violence. Maybe you've heard the accusation, as I have, even from relatives, that the God of the Old Testament must be evil because he ordered the destruction and genocide of the Canaanites. So we need to be cautious. What is it that God is really telling us here? There are two things that we need to appreciate about the Old Testament vengeance of God. If we are to understand how it is not something to hide and cower away from, but to glory in. And the first is this. We must understand that the victory and vengeance of God in the Old Testament was just. And secondly, that it was preliminary. It was just. If you have ever talked with an unbeliever, this is one of the arguments that will be used to show how unfair and unrighteous the Christian faith really is. Look at what your God does. But we must appreciate that sin, in all its forms, even the hidden sins of the heart, even those unholy desires that we fail to recognize in ourselves are a breaking of the good commands of our holy God. 
all of them. And what do our sins deserve? The catechism says it, the first catechism says it well, the wrath and curse of God. This is what we deserve. Sin is such an offense against the purity and holiness of God that it must be not simply tolerated or isolated, it must be destroyed. So appreciate what's happening there in Joshua as God's people come in and do destroy the Canaanites. God has, we read from Genesis 15, given these peoples a long period in which to repent. He has shown them steadfast love and mercy. He has upheld the elements and the earth that they might enjoy his favor. But at last, God's judgment must come. Sin has to be dealt with. It was just for God to deal with the sins of the Canaanites this way. And dear friends, it is just that God would deal with ours in this way, is it not? Israel doesn't come in waving the banners of its own holiness and saying, we're so much better than the Canaanites, this is why we deserve to live. No, all of us stand by nature and by our actions and our unholy desires under the wrath and curse of God. And we can see even through the the happenings of God's people after then, uh, all through the season of the kings and into the exile, God does bring his terrible judgments. He does bring destruction on his people. He does, at last, bring his holy vengeance even upon his people. But there's a difference between God's people and the Canaanites. What stands between you and me and the Canaanites is just the cross, isn't it? Just mercy. Purely God's kindness in Christ. My grandfather, I recall, asking the question. He could never quite get past this. It seemed, how could a good God send so many people to hell? That's not the right question, is it? The right question is, why would he rescue you and me? Why would he redeem us in love? Why would he bring us into the honors of Christ's victory? Why would he even bring us into the position of joining with Christ in his vengeance? This is truly what is astonishing. But the judgments of the Old Testament are also only preliminary. There is a picture in that vengeance of God there upon the Canaanites and at other times of the great day of judgment, isn't it? The great day of the Lord is coming. The world is forewarned. There is a lake of fire. The judgment of God will burn forever. And there is no escaping. There is no getting out or getting around that coming judgment. All of that terrible warfare of the Old Testament clearly unveils God's holy wrath is indeed coming. It is a warning. Beware. Repent. Trust in Christ. Now then, this is where the good news comes in, isn't it? Because if God has shown us mercy because of the cross, then that must mean that God has already taken out the measure of his vengeance upon us. Isn't it true that in our unbelief, a lot of times, wearing the clothing of our shame and our guilt, we think, our God is the God of vengeance. What's he going to do to me? And so, like Adam and Eve, we try to run. We try to hide ourselves. We try to clothe ourselves. Maybe it's self-righteousness. Maybe it's just forgetfulness. But God has executed his vengeance toward you, and this is what he has done 
in the overwhelming victory of the cross. He has brought this to pass that you might not only be brought to reconciliation, but honored with Christ's victory and even honored to participate in the vengeance of God. Do you appreciate what God has done in capturing you? God has taken revenge, we might say, upon the serpent. At the cross, has he not crushed the head of Satan? We are, in a sense, in our persons, the revenge of God against all sin in the world. Now, I want you to appreciate, quickly moving forward here, we need to think quickly about revenge. We are not, and the scriptures say this multiple times, repeating from the Old Covenant to the New, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, Romans 12. Leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. So then how do we reconcile this statement? It is your honor, dear Christian, to execute vengeance on the nations because this is what Christ is coming to do. And you're going to participate in it with him. How is this to be reconciled? Well, first, it isn't our responsibility, is it? And it isn't entrusted to us, except as we are with Christ. We are not called upon to take vengeance for ourselves or to be the punishers of others. That is Jesus' right and title. And he will execute it. Yes, he will execute it through his angels and through his people. But there is clearly no place for us to take revenge on our enemies in the way that the flesh seeks out. We are called to something that is rather of the cross itself to a spiritual warfare in a spiritual way. How does God, through us, execute his vengeance? Not swords loud clashing. Not waging war according to the flesh, but with weapons of our warfare that are not of the flesh, but having power, divine power, to destroy strongholds. We take up the weapons and the armor of God. We are clothed with Christ himself, and we take God's vengeance on our own sin, and we hate all in the world that is sin. We execute in ourselves the violence of God's vengeance by a total and utter repudiation of sin and repentance and a fierce desire for the, for the new creation. But there's more, isn't there? If Jesus Christ is coming to judge the world, and that will be the praise of all the earth, and the nations will even sing, as it says in the Psalms 96, 98, of the equity and the right judgment of God in that, what are we now to do with respect to the nations? We are to pursue lost souls with the gospel. We are to pray down strongholds and hold each other up, repent deeply, walk humbly, love our God, love each other. This is the way in which, not only within ourselves, but outside of ourselves, God is determined to have his vengeance and reveal the power of his coming judgment. We are at war. We are at war with principalities and powers, but victory is ours. And that victory will even include, verse 8, binding with chains and fetters 
a procession of vanquished nobility. Think about the pictures, perhaps you've seen them, on old reliefs of the ancient world. The conquered ones, chained together, even around the neck or with a ring in their nose, ropes binding them together, their hands and feet tied together. We execute, by means of the Spirit, the vengeance of our God, even on those who are high and exalted to the highest places in heaven, principalities and powers, and even the rulers of this world come to hear that salvation belongs alone to the Lord. We shall do this. We shall execute the vengeance of our God and be participants in the coming and drawing near of all nations to bow at the feet of Jesus, who does not merely conquer, but bestow honors on those that he would conquer for himself. That is your honor. That is your honor to participate in his victory over the peoples. Several applications very quickly. We have a strong victory in Jesus, and that ought to give us hope for the problems of the church. Think about what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6. This is a bit shocking, but it's right out of Psalm 149. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? There it is. There it is. You have the authority. We, as the body of Christ, under his authority, with his offices and his ordinances, have the authority to deal with the grievances in the church because we have the authority to actually judge the world. We have that authority. We will do this. Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world, and if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Don't you know that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? In other words, we better get busy with judgment. This is what the work of the church is. A holy judgment, a spiritual judgment, a compassionate and loving righteous judgment, but Christ's judgment. Second, we have a strong victory in Jesus over sin in our own lives. Here I want to speak to us as Reformed believers. We have such good theology. Is it possible? Is it possible that our theology and our practical theology don't always agree? Could it be that at times we can say these things and even be a bit shocked? I mean, it is shocking, isn't it? Psalm 149 says what Paul is saying. We're going to judge the world. We're going to judge angels. To be shocked by this, honored by it, appreciate it, Maybe even be willing to change the nameplate on the door. But we don't want a resurrection. We don't want to deal with the real implications of Easter morning and the ascension of Jesus. We'd like to go uncomfortably with enough Jesus to make us feel okay about the sins that really lurk in the background and the formality and the coldness and the deadness and reliance on ourselves, our selfishness, our lordship peeking through. This is not what the victory of Jesus is about. We must take this out of the realm of simply theology and believe it. This is true. Imagine this. You and I are going to be judged on the last day by the words that we have heard this evening. If this is true, we must get started 
with judgment in our own hearts against our own sin. We have a strong victory in Jesus in the darkest moments of our lives. Notice verse 5. Let the godly exult in glory. Let them sing for joy on their beds. Well, when are you in your bed? In the dark? When you can't see what's going on? When you're sick and desperately ill? Even in death, you will lay down, as it were, in sleep. And you can do that without fear because Jesus is victorious. Weak, yes. Small, perhaps. But Christ's victory is not weak and small. We may feel the ravages of time and sin and the weight of its effects, but the greater weight is this honor that is bestowed on you. Think of it. An honor and authority and a title that even gives you in the moment of death the ability to stare it in the face. Not be afraid and have the full conviction that you're just about to wake up. Victory in Jesus who reigns forever and ever. I recall at a time when I was about 15 years of age, going to Moscow, Russia. Just after the fall of communism, it was a group of Christians gathered in an arena. It happened that the president, Boris Yeltsin, was there. There was a tennis match going on, but we were asked to sing. And this is what we sang. Victory in Jesus, my Savior forever. Some of you remember this old song. He sought me and bought me with his redeeming blood. He loved me ere I knew him, and all my love is to him. He plunged me to victory beneath the cleansing flood. That is true, and that is what ought to be sung in the face of the highest and most important and significant decision makers and kings of the entire world. There is more value and worth and honor and title and authority and privilege in this room than there was in that arena. Because you're here. And you are invested with Jesus' own victory title. To win against all temptation and sin. To be the means of his bringing in his elect people. And at last with him to reign and to judge. This is what he will do. This is what he has done. This is our victory. Praise him. Let's pray. Oh, gracious, victorious, mighty God, we do adore and thank you that we, though weak and small, through the love of Christ upon the cross, dying for us, and with all power and authority rising for us, we now stand not only as acceptable, but together with your Son, given the very highest honors and victory as overcomers. We adore and worship you, and our minds can hardly even begin to fathom this. But we pray that with what small measure we may now appreciate the glory of the coming age and of Christ's victory in our life today, that we might make a new effort out of the old things which we are glad to leave behind, our sin 
our sorrows, our weak obedience, our half-heartedness. May we make a new beginning on that new song of praise forever to the living God. We ask, hear us, and give this to us for Jesus' sake. For we pray in his name. Amen.